Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Leslie Short, who is the president and founder of the Kavu Group. And today we are going to talk about the generational divide in organizations and particularly as it pertains to DEI issues. So Leslie is an expert and she's a lot of fun. So we're going to talk about all the things. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. Great to be here. Such a pleasure to have you. Okay. Before we jump into it, tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to found the Kabu Group. Everything I've done in my past led me to the Kabu Group. So a snapshot, my first career was a classical ballet dancer, you know, was told there's no such thing as a black ballerina, spent, I won't give the age, but many, many years as a classical ballet dancer and a ballet dancer here in America and in Europe. So when I speak about culture, I really speak about culture. I have been the only one in the country, not the only one in a boardroom. <laughs> so that, and then coming back to the States, producing television, being a chaplain, being a minister, working with companies in fashion and entertainment, whether it was part of the PR marketing and advertising, president of those divisions, as well as being a corporate operations strategist, where people were hiring me to come in and look at where the holes were in their company. And I would always say, how are you advancing people? What is going on? Why does everyone look like you and sound like you? Is this all that you want? And I was always that person that was kind of push. How do you be better than where you are to diversify where you are? And it wasn't only about color. It was about true diversity across the board. And I got annoyed by hearing the words diversity and inclusion being checkbox thrown oh, it's a trend. No, it's not a trend. And then I built the Kava Group to make sure it's not going to be a trend. All right. Well, let's talk about this because it's certainly not a trend, but I would say in the last three years, things have been heating up in a really interesting way. Certainly conversations are being had at levels that they were not before. I think DEI and racial justice is front and center in a way that it hasn't really been before. Talk to us about the ways in which DEI has really changed in the last three years. Well, I want to start by saying DEI and racial work is two different sets of work. They are kissing cousins, but they are two different sets of work. And I think that needs to be clarified, number one. And then the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, was called multicultural marketing or multicultural, or then it was mosaic, and then it was DEI. And then in the last three years, it became, we've got to do this. And it was Check the box quicker than what we checked the boxes before. So we have women, but then they count it white women as opposed to women across the board. Then there's disabilities. You just can't, you can no longer say, I can't hire someone with a disability because you can't work from home. That has since changed. When we say, when we're looking at race, we are looking at black and brown and tan folk across the board. And We're not looking to just be within, hired, and that checkbox. How are you building inclusion? That's how you look, how you feel, how you sound when you walk into a place. And it's the now company's responsibility to set that tone, which is not belonging, okay? Because you decide where you belong. It's inclusion, building that. And then the equity portion is really when I'm, in this room and I get invited, when I get hired, how do I keep moving? 
How do I get promotions? How do I learn new skills? How do I get raises? How do I make sure that I can see my way to the top? And then when I see the top, that there is someone, give me one, give me someone that looks like me so that I know that you're actually committed to your diversity, equity, inclusion statement you've put out. So let's talk about that because after the murder of George Floyd, obviously we saw a lot of demonstrations in the street, Black Lives Matter and so forth. And it feels like a lot of organizations and companies were kind of caught on the back foot, right? Like, oh gosh, we have to do something now. It was like, we're going to put all the black squares up. Some of it felt very performative. I'm wondering, so to switch to our topic at hand, how have you seen the younger folks in the workforce pushing these conversations in ways that disruptive in a good way? Hmm. Well, I don't think half the companies would have done put in a black box, even though they half of them did it the wrong way and didn't know what it actually meant. But or Juneteenth or DEI committees or hiring, if it wasn't for the younger generation that expect much more than a paycheck from a company now. Years ago, you went to work, you kept your mouth shut, you don't speak about mental health, you don't speak about racial issues, you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, it's black, brown, and, and tan people. But black, brown, tan, and white younger generation walks in and demands, if you're going to make this commitment, or if you don't even have one, we're looking for one. Where is it? The part that they didn't demand or that they demand without understanding is how long it takes to actually make retainable, actionable steps. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I know I don't want to give my age up, but you know, among my peer group who are largely ED CEOs of organizations, and again, I don't want to paint the young with too broad a brush, but I do think this generation entering the workforce, call it millennials or Gen Z, have really different expectations of their leaders, really different expectations of the work, the workplace culture, and dare I say, transparency. So can you walk us through a little bit? What is the snapshot of this generation that's entering the workforce now? What, what should we as leaders know about them? One, they use the word transparency all the time. <laughs> that is overused. And I say, stop using that word and ask for visibility but you can hold them to visibility. Transparency, you're never going to see all the books. You're not going to know what's happening. They want to know where the money's going. How's it going? I don't have it for my program. Why are they getting it for theirs? We just got a grant. Where'd it go? Like they want details. Well, you can communicate the big picture of the focus, mission, values, and how this is going to be executed. Then you wouldn't be stuck when the younger generation are asking for all these other details. There is much more communication that's expected to give an order and say, go do this without context of the bigger picture doesn't work for this generation. And this generation doesn't care that there's five older white men that may be sitting at the top. They want to know when the brown town folks are sitting at the top next to them. And they don't always understand, and not that it's wrong, how things need to maneuver to get there. And I'm always like, that's great. You can keep yelling. We want women hired, but I don't want a woman put in a spot that it's a setup. And then they're not getting the right tools, the support, the finance, whatever it is to build whatever they're supposed to be building because somebody's just checked the box. So the older generation, we're used to show up, 
be quiet, do your job. I don't see color, that whole thing, because there is a generation that was raised not to see color. And so I always have to say to that generation, I need you to see color. I need you not to use color against anyone. And for the younger generation to step back and share why this is important to your generation. Because we don't have communication. We don't ask questions on this side and we march on this side and then we butt heads without understanding that we can find a common goal to begin to build equity. Let's talk about, so something that you mentioned seems to be something about impatience. And I remember being young and being very impatient and wanting everything to happen Mm -hmm. yesterday. And as we know, in organizations, things do take time, especially if it's a complex organization. I'm just wondering, how do we balance the complexity of organizational change with the demands of this young workforce that want everything done yesterday? And then also knowing that we have the Great Recession, where this younger generation is very much in demand. They know that they can pick up and, and go anywhere else quickly. So how, how would we balance all of these tensions? I think as a company, you have to really look and say, what is my added value to an employee? beyond the check, because we never did that before, and beyond healthcare, because the younger generation will get up and quit and figure out how to get healthcare. They will get up and quit and knit a hat and have a company tomorrow. And so what they're looking for is what is your commitment as part of social justice? And when I say, and racial justice is under social justice, is it housing, is it education? What are you doing beyond selling the Twinkets and Twinkies that you're selling? How are you advancing those inside? And because you are flashy outside, doesn't work for me. So a company really has to evaluate what are they doing to not bring employees in? Because you can hire anybody. How do you retain the talent that you have, that you already have, and the new ones that you bring in? For the younger generation, You have to understand that you have talent, but you also have a huge untapped talent that hasn't been released yet that maybe need to be cultivated, that you need someone from that generation to see how they move, whether it's how you want to move or don't want to move, but understand system policy and procedures and then how you can disrupt them in a good way. Yeah, it's so interesting because as I reflect on my own career, it's not that I came up at a time where everything was hunky-dory. I certainly had concerns, but again, I think I'm of the generation where it's like, be quiet, get your paycheck, put your head down and just work, right? That is, the right. it's called work for a reason. And right. it's, it's interesting to me that how the younger generation is really challenging these notions of even professionalism. So can we talk a little bit about that? I think there's a particular thinking about that New York Times article that came out about how older millennial bosses are afraid of their Gen Z workforce. And things like a Gen Z might text and not come in because they're not feeling good mentally or they're having a bad period. It's like, okay. <laughs> so tell me about this, because I think there are some really new, let's say, relationships to work and standards of professionalism. Well, let's go back. This generation, everyone received an award. So we can't be mad <laughs> that a generation that everyone got an award because they have showed up to a team. And maybe they put the t-shirt or the uniform on, or maybe they didn't, their name was on the roster, so they still received an award. And now expect them to come into the workforce 
and earn promotions in these things. So, and I'm not saying that everyone's like that, but that was the generation's mindset. Like, let's make sure everyone's inclusive. That's when you over-include. And so now you, and then you have managers that were still the, I want work-life balance, but never really achieved it. You have the younger folks that's like, oh no, it's life-work balance. (laughs) And their definition of what work-life balance or life-work balance is, has never been broken down. So we still, what I keep saying the word, Kate, what does that mean for your organization? If you have that amount of generations, do that, does that mean you can still text me at 9 p.m.? No, you may not, because my workday is over at six or a seven, unless we're doing a big project and there's something that there's an emergency. But there's just this looseness of, I don't want to pick up the phone. I can just text. Do not text me a 42-page PDF. What's wrong with you? If no one says, I don't want to view it that way, this is how we communicate within our company. This is what we're looking for. And here's how we can be flexible that everyone's running amok doing whatever their life work balance is. And that's why we're in this issue now because they tried to give too much or take away too much. That's such a good point. So what I'm hearing you say is as far as the culture is that we just have to get really explicit about expectations, about what is okay, what is not okay, and spelling all of it out. Because I think we can't assume, you know what they say about assuming, but we can't assume Mm -hmm. coming from this older paradigm of, well, of course, you're going to answer an email at 11 o'clock at night. Well, of course. (laughs) But devil's advocate for one second. So I've heard Mm -hmm. this from other leaders who shall remain nameless, but some of the challenges that they have with their younger workforce around basic things like showing up to meetings on time or delivering a work product on time. And I think what I've seen is there's a really quick move to attribute that to white supremacy culture. I literally had someone say, my staff thinks that it's white supremacist of me to insist that they come to meetings on time. So I'm like, okay, not really sure. Not really sure how to do that. (laughs) But what would you advise? You said the magical word, culture. See, culture is not something that you, that just happens. Culture is not the ping pong table and the beer and the wine and the cupcake and all of that. That's helping celebrate culture. Culture, you have to cultivate. And that's the expectations of how you expect people to work, how you expect people to show up, how they should be dressed when they show up, how you handle meetings, what your branding, your mission, your values, and your vision is, and how you make that come alive every day. And that's, that is something that you just don't put on a wall and let it live or put in a handbook and let it live. That's something you must do and live each single day. That's how you respond to emails and within a timely fashion. Do you have these conversations that as a company, this is how we move? Because then the expectations when you're hired is there. Now, if you don't meet that expectation in your 90-day trial period, don't be upset when you're at at-will employee and you are no longer, you are at-will to go. But we don't cultivate culture and we don't set expectations. So therefore, I get to do what I want to do because no one said I couldn't. So let's talk about the tension between autonomy and being in charge. Because sometimes when you're running an organization, the answer is because I said so. As a leader, you 
sometimes just get to make a decision. And I'm just curious, how does this younger generation view that? I know they're big on collaboration and conversation, but at some point, sometimes as leaders, we just get to decide things. Absolutely. And with so, no, how, with very little context. Talk to me about how to thread the needle between having this collaborative culture, making people feel like they're part of the conversation, but at the end of the day, having the decision as the leader. There, it's just what you said. There are things that are going to happen as a leader that you're going to need to make that call. The fish stinks from the head. And that's, so it starts right there. And there's a way to be collaborative in certain projects. But again, it's that line of communication. If you're a company that updates people in, in staff meetings, but it's more than this is what we're doing, you allow that department to have that conversation, to present what they're doing, to break it down. It's not always the same people. If you have that manager and director that's allowed to make decisions throughout, when the boss makes the decision, it doesn't feel like I'm being pushed to do something. It's part of the process because, and you understand that it's part of the process. But what also happens as leaders go, well, it's me. I get to decide I'm going to do it and that's it. Well, you're not helping the culture or that's the culture that you're building. That whatever I say goes whenever it says. But there's a way that you can cultivate that. At the end of the day, I have to make final decisions. I'm going to make final decisions that are bigger than what we discuss each day or how we move each day because I have to think of the board or whatever the finances are. And I will continue to make sure that you all are, that's why that visibility and not transparency is important, that you all are up to date on things that are happening. Doesn't mean you get all the details. Who said you get all the details? And I think that's where that clarity has to come in, that expectation. You have managers and directors that have been promoted because they are very good at their job, but they're not very good at managing or directing. So, because this is important. So you have that generation that's sitting with leadership and hearing all this stuff that doesn't translate down when they hit their teams or their team only gets a piece. And so that's where the backlash happens because there's that lack of communication all the way through on what was supposed to be a meeting for you to go back and communicate with your team. Got it. I want to put a pin in this communication point because I think it's worth digging into, but can you just elucidate for us the difference between transparency and visibility? Because you've now said, said it twice. I think it's an interesting point, but you know, for the listeners out there, yes. what's the difference? Let's go back to old school science. Transparency, you pick something up and you can see through it, completely through it. Visibility means you may be able to see it and you can see part of it, but you may not be able to see all the way through it. But you know it's there and you're aware of it. And so the transparency is I can see all the way through. I know what finance is doing. I know what this person's doing. You're trying to understand how to run a full company. And all somebody's asking you to do is write the copy for something. Not that it's not important to understand. I want you to understand because I want you to be invested in what's happening. But you're not going to get every detail to where every penny is going. You're not going to know what happens in the board meeting or sometimes even who's, who all the board members are. You're just not sometimes. And so you have to sit back and go, what is the information that I need to have to be the best employee I can be for what I need to do today and for the bigger picture of the company to move this forward? 
And so that's having the visibility of having the information that you need to move forward. You understand the difference? Because people sit in the meeting and go, I want transparency. I'm like, for what? On what? Be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think like it's often not clear in the minds of the people requesting it too, because they don't know the difference between transparency and visibility, but also to what end? Like, what are you going to do with the information about how we budget for X, Y, and Z? Because I I think there's also this assumption because you know, you then get decision-making power. What's the, what's the connection there? Absolutely. And so just a small sidebar, Kavu, the meaning of Kavu is unlimited visibility. It's a aviation term. And that's why I named it that because I'm like TVI, it is unlimited visibility. It's not transparency. All right, Leslie, let's talk tactics here. So a lot of what you're saying seems to be embedded in practices and habits. So let's talk about communication as an example. What are some takeaways that leaders can implement in order to start to build this culture of visibility? Mm -hmm. And I hesitate to say empowerment because I feel like this generation is very empowered, but building a healthy team. What what are some things? The first thing is don't assume that everyone understands the mission. Even though it's printed somewhere, make sure you're clear on the mission. Make sure you're clear on the values. Values are very big to this generation. So make that a priority. But again, don't just put it on the wall. And that's something that can be collaborative. What are the words that we're going to live by? What's important to you? That is something that everyone's looking for team building things. That's something you can do together. Take that information and continue to build on that. Understand that everyone doesn't work the same way. And when I say that, you're going to have your type A, get it done all the time. And you may have someone that needs much more information. So it's also making sure as a leader, again, that your managers and directors have had a leadership workshops and that they understand how to be leaders beyond just doing the work. So there's that empowerment all the way through. Because what happens is there's a generation that says, well, I spoke to my director and they don't understand that this is what I need to get done. They just keep piling it on me. And so understanding how to give people support, not only Here's resources, but hey, you don't seem like you're on your game today. Are you okay? Is there something we can do better? Are you good? Do you need to take that extra hour? Go do that, get yourself together, come back. Being aware of who you're working with and their strengths and their weaknesses from leadership all the way through. And then being able to communicate. We're not having a great moment right now. I know the morale is low. I understand that project didn't work the way we want. Here's three ways I see that we're going to be able to move it. But we don't say that as leaders. Yeah. It didn't work. Now we've got to go to war. We've got to like- right. It's so interesting as you're talking, Leslie, because I'm, I'm really reflecting on my own experience. And I think the challenge for a lot of folks who are founders <laughs> is making the transition from being a founder to actually being an institution, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think as founders, to quote Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there. Like founders are successful because like they move fast, they make decisions, mm-hmm. they see that they, like they work hard, they grind. And then when they grow and scale, and it's less about doing the thing and more about 
managing and leading people who do the thing. That's where I mm-hmm. see a lot of founders really falter. I, and I'll include myself yes. in that. I, I don't think I am naturally a great manager. I think I'm a naturally a pretty good leader, but when it comes to like systems and processes, that's really my Achilles heel. So talk to me a little bit. Is that something that you've seen as well? And if so, like, how do you help these poor founders who want to scale up? Find your yang to your yang. <laughs> Find that other founder or leader that that is their strength. And you let them do that part of it. And you all come together and you all collaborate on things. But everyone, you know, I had a leader that really should not speak to their staff. <laughs> you know, they really shouldn't. They're amazing at what they do. Their communication skills is not the best for motivating someone to actually do it. But there was someone that understood their madness and they were a better communicator. And so that, that CEO leader would come on and be, hey, great to see everyone. I'm gonna turn it over to so-and-so. And that happy two seconds they could do. The other person got tactical and could, could motivate and get people to do things. Understanding your strengths and your weaknesses I always say what's in your bag, your biases, your Achilles heel. You have to know what that is in order to be a leader. In order to manage someone else, you have to know what you're good at and what you're not so good at. And you have to listen and you have to build a trust. And trust is action, not just always conversation. I like that. Trust is action. It actually reminds me of a lot of what I'm reading about now the difference between visionaries and what they call integrators, like people Mm -hmm. who are visionary, big picture, we'll figure it out on the way, those kind of people. And the integrators who are like the process, like, okay, we got to make sure like we've packed the tent and like we've got the food and everyone knows where they're going and we have maps and we have compasses and like no one's going to run out of water. Because I think sometimes speaking for myself as a visionary type person, I can be a little like light on the details. (laughs) Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find water on the way. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm both. Yeah. I'm the big visionary. I'm always there. But there's all, I've already done the pattern there. And I've done the pattern there. And I've created and I'm detailed. But I also have to realize everyone isn't like that. And so when I go to someone, oh, you're overthinking this. And they go, no, I'm not. I have to stop myself to hear them and understand their process or what they see that I may not have seen. And that comes with age or maturity, knowing we, we, we like to are. call it wisdom around here, Leslie. Wisdom, I'll take wisdom, I'll <laughs> take that. <laughs> but it's understanding this is my moment to be quiet and hear someone else because as much as they may be able to run with you, at this moment, they need to backtrack. And it's okay, because there's not a fire we're putting out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk nitty gritty here. So you wrote a book about going beyond your current culture. What are some practices that you think we really, as a sector or as a society, really just need to get rid of? Like they are not sparking joy. It's not all about you. Really that simple. <laughs> we are such, it's called expand beyond your current culture, meaning not only the culture for which you were born in, but the culture for which you live in, how you speak, what you eat, how you look at people, why do you do what you do? And why, and it's not a PhD, why do you do what you do? It's what's your gut reaction and you move on. Why do you assume that everyone's thinking like you? And why do you assume that you can speak for another culture? 
instead of finding someone that you can work with and build together and allow them to be that voice with yours. And so that's why I say it's not always about you. Are you building projects and systems, right? Even internally. And you go, that'll work. But yet you didn't speak to the people that actually have to work through it. Do we need another affinity group? I don't need to sit around a table and talk to people that look like me and sound like me to tell what we're talking about. And then who is going to go back and relay what we've spoken about and the wishes and desires? And then who's going to actually do the actionable steps to make that a reality for a company. So I speak about that and how people are not monolithic and that you must examine yourself before you should even be having a DEI conversation. Because if you don't know who you are as a person, how are you ever going to know what you are as a company? Oh, that's such a good point. As I'm listening to you too, I'm wondering if you can tactically walk us through some best practices here, because it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is a level of self-reflection and organization reflection that I think we often don't see or don't make time for. Can you talk to us about some best practices about how we can really build that into the life of an organization? Because again, especially in nonprofits, like, go, 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 right? It's always like, we're under the gun. We got right. this grant. We got, da, 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 like the project, we're understaffed. But I think over time, it's not sustainable to constantly be on in fire mode. So right. what are some of the things that leaders might build into their organizational culture so that they can have the time and space to think about these mm-hmm. kind of deep reflection questions? Why is this important to me? To me as a person, to me as, as a company? Why is DEI important? How does it build our culture, which should be a foundation of any organization? But Ask yourself that if you don't have it, then what can I do to make sustainable changes or a shift, low-hanging fruit, your handbooks, look through that inclusive language. Who's in the interview process? Where are you placing your ads? Who's consulting you on what the ad reads and looks like? Who's sitting at that table? Who do you call every time something needs to happen? Is it always the same three people or do you bring in different voices? Those are the questions that you ask yourself. Why, who, when, and then how to move it. What is this? What does it mean to us? You know, it's the old PR. What is it? Who is it? When is it? And why is it? Mm -hmm. And then build it. So don't build over here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I really enjoy the idea of experimenting our way into culture. I've certainly been part of initiatives where we're going to reimagine everything and And then Monday rolls around and it's the same old thing. So, I mean, tactically, how would you recommend doing that? Does it look like weekly staff meetings? Does it mean like quarterly half day meetings? Does it mean an annual retreat? Like how do we embed some of these conversations in a really sort of tactical way? One, if you're not prepared to do it, hire someone that can, but hire someone that understands your culture, has a respect for your industry. Just don't start hiring everyone. Everyone has a different way of of working and approaching DEI. So you need to connect. So sending an RFP out and saying, I want to speak to 15 agencies. No, someone has to research agency and say, 
hmm, something they're saying or resonates sounds like that's where we would like to go. And when you bring them in, then listen, I always ask, what's your goal? And then how do you see get there? I don't know. Then here's some steps that I want to start looking at. And then we make a plan. Before, our, of course, we're in COVID now, so everyone can't go into the office, but introduce this person or whoever you're going to work with to the entire staff and say, this is who's going to be working with us. They may be reaching out to you directly for one-on-one conversation. We're going to build this in. We're going to do two mandatory staff workshops. And I don't call them trainings because you don't train a human being. You have conversations. So we're going to do two mandatory workshops. And then while this person's working with us to do some things behind the scene that we'll be able to share with you for what you've given them, we're also going to be offering other workshops that you can volunteer to take in. And we want to hear what you think is important here. And when you give us that information, it's going to go to them, not to us. So what I'm really hearing here is that it's important, maybe even crucial to have an outsider who can manage the process. Because I think so often in in nonprofit, we have this idea of like, well, we'll we'll figure it out. Like, we're not going to spend the money (laughs) to hire someone. There's black and brown folks over there. Let them do it. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. We're just going to add it on someone else's. But it sounds like what you're really advocating is hiring someone who's very skilled, but also can manage the process because it is a process. And I think in retrospect, where I've erred is believing that people internally could manage this in addition to their work. You really need that outside. It's almost like a marriage therapist. Like You have to bring <laughs> right. in that third party to help facilitate the conversations. And to have another, have a different type of trusted voice that your staff can look at and ask questions and, and email if that's the way that is set up. And to be able to, while you're off planning your big whatever event, I'm still working on this. (laughs) I don't get caught off and it doesn't get put aside and, oh, let's do this. It's okay. Next week, I know you're traveling. Let's get something on the books. What's our hour going to be that we continue this conversation? We left off here last time. When we come back with the staff, we want to be able to say we've been able to execute A, B, C, and D. This is going to take a little longer. This is where we're moving next asking if there's something else new that you have seen along the way since we've had this conversation. Yep. Who's that voice that's saying that? Mm -hmm. If it's not a valued voice within the company, it gets lost. Well, and if it's not somebody who has the capacity and bandwidth to actually manage the process, it fizzles because we get distracted by all the things happening. And and just if I could add quickly, I'm sorry. And it has to be bigger than just having a conversation about race because DEI, some people still are thinking about race. It is being able to speak about race, but beyond what I may look like or sound like or walk like it's beyond it's conversations about disabilities, like seen and unseen It's also understanding the laws that help facilitate some of these things, looking at process and procedures and understanding what has to go to a lawyer and what doesn't, and how do we have these conversations and keeping things moving for equity across the board and inclusivity for the entire company for the culture. Yeah, such a good point. I mean, because I do think we often think of DEI as very narrowly in terms of race, but you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. It has to be across the board. In fact, one of my friends, Ruth, is really trying to 
get disability included in the conversation of DEI. So if you don't have it included, then you're not having a real conversation about DEI. You're not having a full conversation. Right. LGBTQ plus. Mm -hmm. 100%. So Leslie, as we are winding down, so there's a fun question I've been asking guests. If you had a billboard and could send a message out into the world, what would be on your billboard? Keep it moving. K-I-M it. So that's the name of my other company. Keep it moving. We get so caught up in so many things that bogs us down. Keep it moving. We have options. I love it. And also, I think let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Because I think sometimes we get, what is it, paralysis analysis. And we just think, if I continue like tweaking this thing until it's perfect, then nobody will be upset about anything. Right, right. And that's not it. My second billboard, of course, would be expand beyond your current culture. Push yourself. It's okay. It doesn't take anything away from you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Examine to share in someone else's culture. Leslie, where can folks get in touch with you if they want more of what you're offering? Always by LinkedIn under Leslie Short, the Cava Group. My website is the, T-H-E-C-A-V-U group, the Cava Group. Make sure you put the the, otherwise you're going to get a construction company, uh, which, is not, which is not the same. And then kind of a construction media. company. You're like a culture yes. construction company. <laughs> culture I like that. And under social media at the Cava Group. And what is the name of your book in case folks want to get on Amazon and get the book for themselves? Expand Beyond Your Current Culture. Great. And you can get an ebook or you can get the, the book itself. Fantastic. Well, we will make sure to put all of that information in the show notes for folks who are listening on the pod. But thank you so much, Leslie. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. Take care.